Welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I'm your host, Federica Bressan, and today my guest is Alex Vaupotic, head of the Research Center for Humanities and professor at the University of Nova Gorica in Slovenia. He is a literary comparatist, a new media artist, and a curator who lives and works between Ljubljana and Nova Gorica. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thank you for being on Technoculture. To begin with, I would like to ask you, how do you combine, and if you find it easy or hard, being an academic scholar and also a creative artist, considering that a lot is said about the almost opposed mindset that is required to conduct research or to be a creative artist? Yeah, this is a major issue in like establishing my position Uh, also within the field of art and in the field of um, scholarship, like literary scholarship. Uh, I remember when I was finishing my undergraduate studies in Ljubljana, it was uh, a study of comparative literature. I learned many theories from the field of humanities. And at a certain point, I wanted to somehow engage with the material with art, maybe literature or any kind of art, in a more immediate way. And then, of course, I was interested in fine arts, visual arts, video in particular, in particular throughout my studies, but not as part of my formal education. So I was starting to drift into the field of uh, video and new media art. And it actually helped me understand the the material that I studied as a literary theorist much better. So this is what I try to use as an argument when somebody tells me that I'm too much of an artist and not enough strict as in the field of theory. Of course, nobody says that I don't do the theory strictly mm-hmm. enough, but that my approach is an artistic approach, which is an unusual approach. Well... That's a reality that I have to accept, but uh, I think it adds to my understanding of humanities questions, whereas in the field of art, I don't know, maybe humanities and the theorists' view doesn't help, so I'm not sure about that. I oftentimes see that even in research, in the beginning, it all starts with an intuition, and then you take all the necessary steps to prove if that intuition and what it led you to makes sense, is true, there's evidence to back it up. So in the beginning, there still needs to be that, which is more um, characteristic of the artistic approach rather than just 100% rational. Although this is a simplistic view, and I'm fully aware of that. What I'm What I'm sorry about is that it's oftentimes also the only narrative we hear when today these things are talked about. Things are probably more nuanced in in between. But um, what do you think? Is that so that even in uh, scholarly research, you need those intuitions, you need that sensibility, so to speak, on which then you build a systematic, pragmatic path that maybe then differs from the activity of the artist or, or not, or does it? What do you think? Yes, uh, of course, this is an ideal image of how you could uh, approach a problem. 
but uh, I might be a bit conservative in in my position as a literary scholar. Basically, I want uh, like humanities scholarship, uh, like theory of historiography. I don't know theory of uh, certain genre of art. Uh, basically, you have to be really strict when you are developing theoretical perspectives. And I know that very few artists are as disciplined as most of the theorists are. So, you know, there many artists may use some elements of theories, but they don't push the argument far enough, you know. So basically, theory is not that interesting, not that interesting. Maybe it is, uh, yeah, it is more strict, maybe limiting, but if you go really deep into issues, you know, then uh, maybe that's then it's interesting from another point of view, not from a creative point of view, but basically you are more of a philosopher, you know, where you really go into issues that are complex and uh, really difficult to imagine. In your work, The Language of New Media, a milestone book by Lev Manovich from 2001, recurs, uh, as well as many concepts contained in this book. For example, the concept of cultural interface, which is a key concept in his theory of new media. I would like to ask you, how central is this concept in your research, considering that when Manovich wrote the book in 2001, digital humanities were not as widespread as they are today. This is a new label and digital humanities are precisely concerned with many different things, among which one is that of studying, observing the impact of digital technologies on how we conduct research in the humanities and also how cultural content is indeed spread and perceived. So how central this concept is in your research? Yes, uh, yeah. Manovich is an author which I admire a lot. And uh, basically what is the most important uh, that we can take from his works, I think is the theoretical framework that was developed in the book Language of New Media. He's like an interesting guy, you know, as far as I understand, I don't know him personally, but uh, he does artistic works but I imagine that uh, like his focus is also really strongly uh, rooted in the theoretical approach, because in the language of new media, he actually refers to Foucault and approaches as his uh, theoretical background, among, of course, others. Uh, for me, I remember finishing my uh, master's studies in video and new media at the Art Academy in Ljubljana. And... Uh, I was using computers to make art. And uh, somehow I started making uh, virtual spaces. And of course, in a virtual space, you have to put some stuff in the space, you know? So basically we have to find things to put them into the space. And of course, then when you have the things that you put in the space, then of course we have to look at how to put them in this uh, particular space. So uh, here you have the uh, dichotomy between the things that you collect. So you have to have something. Okay, there was like gener generative art where you would just get some random stuff 
flickering in the screen, which is all right, but I was not that much interested in that aspect. So basically, if you are building a space, you have to control what are the elements in this space and, of course, then, of course, how it functions as an interface or stuff, something like that. So uh, Manovich really, like like defined the concept, basically how the language of new media works. And that's basically you have a, a database or an archive of a multimedia material, and then you have one or more, or basically you basically have more interfaces to this same material uh, that you have. So I was really intensely like interested in and working in my own artistic uh, works, basically on how to bring together an archive of different things and of course how to make a new media artwork or some sort of uh, interactive video at the time you know i, I didn't know the concept initially uh, so how to bring this together for me here i was going back to my of course comparative literary studies which were which i finished before uh, starting the art academy and uh, comparative literature i was focusing in my graduate work on Mikhail Bakhtin. And for him, the most important uh, aspect in the study of literature is to recognize different voices of different groups of people, different uh, like social classes, different uh, cultural groups, different people in any possible uh, way. So basically you would have to preserve, protect those different voices that Basically, he was studying a novel. So how to bring different uh, voices into one novel. So I was studying Mikhail Bakhtin and his theory of the polyphonic novel. And this was in my background constantly because I studied really extensively Bakhtin at the time. So and I tried to translate that into a video and a computer based interactive video space. So. That's basically uh, how I started. And uh, here, Manovich's idea of a dichotomy of a database and uh, numerous interfaces to this same database is like definition of uh, how you actually build a, a meaningful entity in new media. And this is important for like art, for new media art. Of course, you have to have a new object, something that the viewer user is faced with but i was always thinking of going back you know to the humanities argument right uh, when you discover something or then you have to of course argue for your ideas what you found out about history of literature or whatever and it has to function in a similar way basically to have an archive of findings and then put them together in a way that functions I don't know if it's very clear, but this was actually my entry point into the new media art. And then I was still in one foot in the like comparative literature, basically in the theory of discourse of Bakhtin. And of course, I used Foucaultian language of Foucault's The Archaeology of Knowledge to speak about basically the Bakhtinian theory. What I find interesting is that it seems to be understood that how cultural data are encoded and presented through different types of interfaces is not neutral. It impacts the way you receive that content. 
And yet, it's such a subtle, subtle concept because it's not easy to explain why and how. That's why it's tricky. But what I would like to ask you is... Um, Are, is there a way to crack the code, to talk about these things, to measure these things, or to master the art of data presentation so that you can steer the interpretation of the user in one way or the other? Can you measure this? And I would like you to respond to this by telling me how you talk to your students about this when you introduce them to the field of digital humanities, where this is such a fundamental concept. Yes, uh, here... I have a uh, quite uh, clear, like, uh, touchstone, basically, the reference point. In the new media art, visual art, video for me, the main reference point is Namjoon Pike, his uh, video works. And uh, if we remember how his works look like, it's basically like a total mix of mediated images appropriated from uh, like mass media and stuff like that and it really changes extremely quickly the thing is that uh, this is a way of saying something that is completely different from some sort of uh, uh, reasoning of like uh, storytelling of being clear in a sense so uh, basically how to Like, make presentation clear, for me, the measure for that would be actually that it is as clear as our videos of Namjoon Pike. Because, for instance, if you want to speak about cultural history in Korea, you have, uh, for instance, it's not that, uh, like, uh, that well-established in Europe, uh, but in Korea you have people that have certain skills, for instance, drumming or, I don't know, dancing or stuff like that, that are considered national treasures. And uh, of course, if you look at uh, Namjoon Pike videos, he has like masters of drum drumming in his videos and stuff like that. So uh, basically you have two options. You can document how these people actually perform those extremely uh, complex skills, or you can just remix this in a completely crazy way. So uh, I believe that uh, the language of video is a kind of uh, meeting point between presentation of information in new media and uh, basically the world as we like think of it rationally every day. And uh, here there's one work, work by Namjoon Pike, which is not like his best work, but it's uh, really clear. It's uh, called Key to the Highway. And it's basically the shape of the Rosetta Stone, you know, the stone where you have like Greek hieroglyphic and I think Aramaic, Aramaic uh, inscriptions, so they could, of course, translate hieroglyphic script. Uh, so he used the shape of this, uh, this stone and put uh, like three types of writing in of course, three layers, like those three translated texts. On top, you, there are some images, some scribbles. Uh, then in the middle, you have normal texts about from, Fluxu, from Fluxus era. And then at the bottom, there are uh, screenshots of Namjoon Pike's uh, videos. So basically, you have different ways of saying something. But I also believe that maybe our culture 
has changed so drastically that the language was like dominating 19th century before, of course, but before the the images took over, is something uh, completely different and that we have to learn the language of video, which is not rational. It is not actually developed argument in the same way that you would develop argument in a paper text. Of course, then how you measure whether a presentation of data, of information is okay. Basically, at this point, you have to judge for each individual result, each individual project in particular, and then decide. Because now I don't think there is any more clear measure than what I said here, you know, basically trying to understand the, the complexity of how the image, a dynamic image, either on a screen, an interactive screen, or uh, I don't know, in any way, you know, how it actually mediates and changes and shapes your argument and changes, of course, the material that you painstakingly uh, collected, you know, the initial archive that you actually, of course, have to collect and be very strict, you know, you're not just fabricating falsehoods, you know. Basically, we work to get as real information as we can in the humanities. A lot of technology has happened after Manovich published the book in 2001. For example, Facebook wasn't there, but the internet wasn't what it is today. And also mobile devices weren't in everybody's pockets like today. Do you think that despite this gap, Manovich understood something fundamental about the new media and he exposed the theory just right so that it doesn't need a significant update today or do you see a fundamental shift or change in the landscape of the new media? Yes, uh, I think that's the case. As I said, okay, maybe this seems a bit uh, like... Uh, that I'm like self-indulging, but basically I read his theory as saying exactly what I was doing in my projects because I was collecting archives and basically building multiple interfaces to those archives. And uh, yeah, if we want to speak about uh, the new technical devices, this is what he uh, uh, like addresses in his uh, last in his last book, uh, the the software takes command, where he calls Alan Kai uh, and uh, his co-author basically uh, about he, they, he, there was a in the seventies there was this text speaking about the Dyna book, which was uh, actually the concept of a portable computer. So basically you. Uh, walk around with laptops and do everything. But that was a text from, I think, 75, something like that. So, you know, there is the the technology was actually uh, thought through at the time because they could actually foresee what will happen. The other thing is, of course, uh, basically how we use computers today. Uh, and uh, again, if we go back to the mother of all demos, what's that like? from the 60s uh, by uh, Douglas Engelbart. Again, you have like, uh, it's basically that you have different terminals on one computer, which is actually similar to cloud computing now, you know? So basically the first presentation of a like 
contemporary kind of computer and interfaces was actually developed on a single computer, but it was not there in the space. It was actually distant in one space, and then there were different terminals at uh, different locations. So you would have some sort of cloud computing already then. So I'm not really sure that things have actually changed that much. What I do notice that has changed in the last, let's say, five to 10 years is that basically people are like losing faith in what those what those new technologies will contribute like also the use of uh, like uh, social media this is something that the early like new media artists i think would object to you know because at the time we would be really Okay, I might not be the first generation or so on, but uh, also my generation working after 2000. Uh, and uh, basically, we would be uneasy uh, giving our data and basically our engagement with computers to a corporation uh, somewhere to, to do whatever with that. The critical view of technologies is actually because of the mass use, of course, is not as emphasized as it was, as I recall, like 10 years ago. I asked you whether you think that Manovich's theory requires some major update, because oftentimes when he is brought up in conversations, some people object that it's an old text, that it's just an old reference, so we should be past there, although they tend not to say what other better more updated theory should replace Manovich's view fundamentally? Yes, basically, I must say that I test my understanding of the theory of new media with my students. And uh, I see, I you know, when you have to explain this to younger uh, generations, basically you have to persuade them that this makes sense. And I actually combine Leo Manovich's theory mainly with the with the theory by Espen Orschet, his book, uh, Cybertext, the, perspective, the Perspectives on Ergodic Literature. It's even older than Manovich from the 90s. That means that it's older than your students, correct? Uh, yes, exactly. When you say your students, what generation? This is 1999-2000, something like that. Yes, they must be from like their 20s, so yeah, 18 years, it's like, yeah, almost 2000, yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, they're probably a bit like older than 20 years ago, in that 20 years. But so basically, I I want to, to, to give, to show to my students descriptive categories that they can use when they speak about uh, new media. And... Uh, this is here. This is where uh, Espen Orschert's theory of cybertext uh, comes handy, because uh, he was developing uh, the ways how to distinguish different kinds of uh, cybertext. And cybertext would be basically text that has some uh, self-manipulating mechanisms. So basically, you can have a hypertext, which is a text where basically you it offers you ways of choosing your path through the textual database. What I find it like crucial in uh, Orshad's work is that he distinguishes 
like he says a lot, but basically the key thing is the distinction between two kinds of cybertext. One is like a uh, single user uh, cybertext. So basically you can imagine a person playing a video game, computer game, and uh, there's of course the rules and the whole system, whatever, and it can be super spectacular on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's a multi-user discourse. That's where you can speak to other people, which would be, of course, he, at the time he speaks about those multi-user dungeons, which were like text-based sites of where you could chat or you can, of course, there were those adventure games when you could like explore. Uh, there's this great cave adventure. It's like one of the most uh, famous ones is where you would explore caves and uh, you would enter a room and then some text would come up and says you're in a room, there's a hammer, you can pick up that hammer or stuff like that. So, and you can imagine, of course, like in literature, you know, if you're in a room and somebody tells you what you see, you see it like you see it in a novel. So basically, if you have a single user uh, and if you want to develop that, basically you have to uh, develop that system, the game that the user plays and the uh, of course, then show some information because if you want to have a text, then has to be some meaning in it. If you have a multi-user cyber text, then basically people can do anything. So you have to establish a new society, a group of people that's sustainable, that doesn't need the author's input all the time. And basically you, you're not basically developing any rules or any content, what you need to establish here is a community. And uh, of course, such a community is Facebook. Those people manage to get like an enormous amount of people giving their work, uh, collecting the materials. Of course, they are controlling to, it to some degree. Basically, also people can like talk to each other, you know, which is really important. And uh, they develop certain social skills, and this is what is actually involved in developing a multi-user cybertext. So this distinction, distinction between a single-user uh, cybertext and a multi-user uh, cybertext helps you explain basically how to think about those things. Because if you were speaking about multi-user cybertext, then basically the only measure of what is there is how the uh, like uh, community of people using this uh, communication system, like what they are doing, how this community works, what is it made of, what are its rules, and uh, how active is it, who is active, and so on. Technoculture is interested in uh, talking around, because I think you can't really talk about, how digital technology impacts our lives. You can say that one small difference is that 10 years ago I used to call my friends mostly from my landline and now I have my mobile phone so I can text them which we normally do we text more than we speak nowadays and I can do it from uh, the grocery store I can do it from the bus and this doesn't sound like a big change but if you think that I can make a bank transfer that I can book a flight that I can do all that we know that we can do today from basically everywhere. All these things summed together, 
they change our experience. This changes the way we organize time and therefore we perceive time and also others, relations. What about the fact that we write more than we have ever written before and how many emails we send every day? So this entire landscape, if you look at it altogether, really looks something dramatically different from if you want to go back 30, 40 years to the 80s. It is different. I still think that it's kind of hard to look into the difference because we don't have the historical difference to make a detached, precisely, reflection on our current state. I would like to ask you if you do some comparative work like this, comparing how today differs from 20, 30 years ago, or 10 for that matter, or you only look at today, what happens today, and you kind of make reflections around what you see? I'm sure I think you're touching on the like core issue of like uh, digital humanities, because on the one hand, uh, basically, there is a possible approach that you would just digitize and use computers in the like uh, methods, in the things that you would do in the humanities as you used to do things and just do those things with computer. I was always uneasy about that. But basically, I must say when I was uh, like more in the art domain and when the digital humanities, the term digital humanities came in vogue, I was actually approaching uh, like like introducing the theory of new media into comparative literature. And I was actually against uh, like direct contact between uh, just technical approach to uh, how the computers are used in, uh, can be used for culture uh, reasons. And of course I wanted the mediation of somebody who is really focused on how the communication works. So I think to think about digital humanities, we have to go back to what the computer as a medium uh, and uh, digital technologies of today actually change but also other technologies. There's the acceleration of the execution of algorithms. So basically computers do things extremely fast. The other thing that has actually changed, there have been different stages or whatever, but there is the acceleration of communication. You could, the communication in a sense of you can quickly like uh, send an, an, a statement and information from one place to another, or you can also move things much more rapidly. So uh, basically, these two things, the acceleration of how you actually can execute rule-based uh, procedures and uh, uh, like the acceleration of telecommunications, either when like transporting humans or things or by just sending information over the internet, I think this really radically changes how the world looks like. What changes is the relationship between the physical body and uh, our environment. And uh, here, basically, I'm thinking about uh, a text by uh, Peter Weibel. He's a video artist, uh, and he's, the, of course, the director of the Centrum for Kunst und Medien Technologie in Karlsruhe. And uh, he's also, of course, I think, uh, one of the key theorists of, of new media. And uh, here, for instance, you have uh, 
different stages that change how a human body relates to its environment. This is also so something that Paul Virilio wrote about. But uh, let's go back to the stages. So basically, you can live locally, you know, in a village, you go out, you go to the field, you do something, so you can admire the world, world around you. So another uh, stage would be like looking out of a window from a train. So you are in a moving room, you, there's a room where you can do stuff, and the environment, landscape, is like a film, you know? You can look at the world and you don't have any relationship to the world that you see, to the window, you know? Here, then, the third, third stage, as a consequence, when uh, basically the reality is actually not tangible as it was in uh, when you live actually locally in a local environment. Here is a text, Disappearing Architecture. Uh, it was a collection of texts, and basically, I think Peter Weibel edited this collection. He was speaking about telematic machines, automobile, airplane, and telematic media, which is TV and so on, basically, that actually uh, like transmit images of reality to us, to people. So what happens is that reality becomes manipulable and uh, artificial. And here is a sentence that he says. He says like this, we do not watch reality through a window. Reality has become a window. If we think about the ways that we can like simulate things, you know, you can like uh, fabricate 3D print things. I don't know you can have virtual reality or everything. So reality is not given, it is a message created by multiple people and groups of people. It has to be read, interpreted, and so on. So basically, this is like the final result of the development between the person. There's like in the beginning, you have a person in the world, and then basically the world is, how you see the world can be manipulated. And of course, if you move quickly through space, uh, this you can see the world quickly. You can we can travel all around the world today. Of course, you can simulate things extremely fast today using computers, and then the reality that surrounds us has many uh, surfaces, many uh, elements, but basically surfaces that you see, or maybe surfaces that you can touch. Sorry, do you mean layers or surfaces? Also, also layers, but here I'm not speaking about because if you have a reality, you can distinguish layers uh, when you when you look at it. But basically, just when you stand in front of things, if what you see adapts to you, like your Facebook account adapts to who you are, you know, not ever not. Nobody sees the same thing as the others, you know. So basically then you have to consider that reality is not just something that is there, you know. It's not nature. It's basically a message. But of course it's not not message from a one person, from a big brother or whatever, you know. It's a really complex, uh, like, fabrication, a mix of different uh, techniques which were... I believe still developed by different people with different cultural, different cultural backgrounds, different ideas, different uh, uh, intentions. So, yeah, to to summarize, uh, digital humanities I think have to radically change the way uh, that humanities 
like when you use digital tours, you cannot actually think about the same categories as we did before, which is of course a problem. And uh, yeah, it uh, demands uh, drastic changes. Does postmodern philosophy inform your work, your approach, your theories? Well, uh, postmodern approaches, uh, I talked about, about this with the professor a couple of years ago, and uh, she's, she was like a senior uh, professor, of course, much more uh, experienced from me. And uh, she said that it's not uh, an idea that is like that clear as it maybe was in the 90s. Uh, the postmodernism is focusing on the, like, how to relativize different approaches. Uh, I think you have two possibilities, basically. A simple example maybe is Michel Foucault's uh, yeah, uh, position within culture, within, within a contempt, current uh, theoretical or methodological uh, framework. You can think of him as a post-structuralist, post-modern thinker, because everything that there is is only uh, discursive regularity, and it's just uh, like a refraction of discourses on other uh, discourses. But uh, also, he says that he wants to be a positivist, positivist, because he wants to actually describe what people say, what are the uh, regular practices that people uh, do, you know, so what they actually do. So not what can be done or how this, what they do is only a practice. It's a fact that people do things, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, those are su substantial things. Maybe they are not material things, uh, but it's a fact that when people do something, it is something that we have to consider as fundamental. And uh, in this case, this is something that is not, this is a view that's not postmodernist. You know, basically there is a reality. Uh, Foucault says, I think in one of his, his uh, lecture at the in, uh, inaugural lecture at the Collège de France, that it's some sort of uh, intangible materialism, something like, no, uh, incorporeal materialism. So you have material effects of things, but there's no body. So disembodied materialism, which is trying here, I think he was trying to find a substance to something that is not a body, a simple body. I would like to ask you to elaborate a little bit on the concept of archive and archive art. You mentioned it before a little bit, but I'd like you to elaborate in the light also of this work by you from 2017, how to study literary realism as archive art. What's about archive art? So the archive art, I think, as I said, digital humanities would, in my opinion, have to at least like uh, think in each particular case uh, how what is what the result of a digital humanities project is is actually always a new media object as defined by Manovich. So you have an archive of things, and basically then you do something with this 
the archive. Of course, uh, in the while building an archive, and of course you have data sets in digital humanities and so on, uh, it is a problem how to uh, like create an archive in the domain of humanities. And here I think uh, there is one particular aspect that can clarify uh, the issues here. The, femin the phenomenological approach in the humanities of Husserl and others, also Heidegger, but basically the phenomenology, which is the study of phenomena and uh, the phenomenon always entails also the person perceiving or understanding the phenomenon. So what you have here is a relationship between the one understanding and the object of thought. So you have, when you think about something, you keep the object that you think about in your thoughts, but the phenomenology, of course, also believes, and I believe with the phenomenologists, that uh, there is also something outside of my mind that is there, the thing that I'm thinking about. But, of course, it is difficult to actually uh, like understand that the, the thing that is outside of myself is something outside of myself. So this is a basic problem for the humanities. Well, I believe that digital humanities should actually accept this challenge. And uh, when you collect archives to work with the, the data further on, I think that uh, we would have to digitize phenomena in the phenomenological sense. So basically in the phenomenological sense, basically we have to describe your intentions. So basically what you are projecting into the reality that you are understanding. So then you have to, of course, uh, recognize that this reality is something different from you. Then there is uh, the object that you are thinking about in your mind. And then there is this particular uh, relationship of intentionality between uh, what you think about and basically the object that you're thinking about. So basically that the phenomenon entails something outside, something that is part of the interpretation and that it is it has different elements. So I don't see this very often or extremely rarely that digital humanities would tackle the problem how to digitize the world, culture, uh, considering the phenomenological approach. So in phenomenology, actually, they uh, found out it, that what you have to do is only be descriptive, which is, of course, a problem, because then you, if you're always describing and you're describing the same thing from uh, many points of view, it's really difficult to, like, turn... Uh, like a museum collection into a data set, you know? So, but I think there, there could be possibilities, you know, to somehow try to note, like to record uh, like interpretations, you know? So basically if you uh, like take that, basically your data, data set is a collection of digitized interpretative acts, then, of course, things get very complicated, but you're making a step uh, towards, uh, of course, better digital humanities. 
for the uh, phenomenologists uh, like Husserl and uh, others, the end result would be basically describing something like a stream of con consciousness, you know, from modernist literature, which is, of course, not scholarship. And, uh, you know, it's endless and you never get to the actual reality in front of you. But maybe uh, we cannot just get to the objects of culture, you know. Maybe if we can't get there, it's better to dig digitize phenomena than to somehow just uh, create databases that it's not really clear what is in those databases. I think also the development of uh, how the database is develop developed sometimes is, is not done in a way that is critical enough. And uh, here, another issue opens up is, of course, the interdisciplinary collaboration between people uh, like coming from different backgrounds, of course, from the humanities, from informatics. Do you think that there is some confusion in the terminology today around archives, including um, collection, data set, database, digital archive? Because handling digital files every day and using precisely the uh, the logic of the computer that groups everything in a hierarchy of folders, we tend to use these terms interchangeably. I have a collection of, or this is my archive of pictures. And yes, I have a database of, meaning also the content. Do you agree that there is confusion in these things? Yes. Uh, this is, again... Uh, a key issue and uh, comparative literature is somehow a discipline that likes to complicate uh, concepts, terms, you know, an archive can mean anything, basically any word in the uh, theory can mean many different things and each author basically develops the meaning. Uh, here basically I would answer with the reference to the digital humanities study program that I have developed at our university, because this is uh, a solution to this problem. Basically, the uh, study program consists from what, a bit less than a half from the humanities uh, courses. So basically, what I would want to teach the students on the, let's say, this is a master level program, uh, program is to understand, in this case, an archive, what an archive can mean in the humanities. And, but if you want to work in the domain of digital humanities, there are two possibilities. You can be a traditional participant in this field who has not, for instance, studied uh, computer science. I haven't. And, uh, but in the future, humanists, digital humanists will have to be able to manage their own data set. So there we have somebody who is technically able to process data. So for this reason, the like 40%, the other 40% of the study program would uh, actually address only uh, computer, computer information science. So we would somehow consciously develop two approaches to actually working with archives of uh, meaningful things. 
Of course, if you process data that is recorded in the digital form that you can manipulate using computer, you have to take this seriously. And this will not go away. And uh, as I said, our reality is changing because you can manipulate things using algorithms and stuff. But on the other hand, you have to be really conscious that an archive, for instance, for, for Foucault, is, it's, a, it's a system of formation and transformation of statements. That's one of the definitions of archive for Foucault. So it's not an archive of things. It's a system of formation and transformation of statements which can mean something or it can not be that concrete. You know? And also in this form, I'm not sure it is. I'm not using this part of Foucault in practice that much. So uh, basically you have to develop the different understandings that pertain to different parts of the digital humanities practice. And I think this is, this is a challenge uh, in this field. And uh, yeah, I was saying that these two parts of the humanities courses and the computer science courses are like a bit less than halves. So the rest would be, of course, to understand uh, the new media communication and the uh, video and uh, user interfaces and stuff like you that. You teach at the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Nova Gorica, but you also contributed to putting together a program in the digital humanities for new students. What kind of skills you decided that students should receive? What kind of subjects are included? And does this program try to have a specific focus that makes it unique in relation with other programs in other universities in the digital humanities? Yeah, when I was developing this study program with my colleagues uh, at the uh, School of Humanities uh, at the University of Nova Gorica, we were looking at other uh, schools, other programs. What I wanted to emphasize is, I think, in a sense, uh, original. What I wanted... Uh, to do is actually to create a heterogeneous mix. And for this reason, I divided the program in two major parts and, of course, the uh, additional third part, which one would be uh, like taught at the School of Humanities, whereas the computer and information science part would be taught by uh, computer scientists and uh, our uh, School uh, for Engineering and uh, Management, which, of course, also uh, has courses and does projects in uh, machine learning and stuff like that. So uh, what I wanted, actually, there's, there, there's a possible approach where you mix the technical approaches with the humanities uh, approaches from the beginning. In Germany, also on the, at the undergraduate level. Whereas here... Basically, we are enrolling people that have finished either a uh, humanities study program, for instance, like literary history, like uh, anthropology, uh, I don't know, history, whatever. Uh, and those are uh, one group of students that can enroll. Uh, the other ones is, are those that have finished uh, computer information science or, uh, or something like that. So, uh, of course, people come from different backgrounds. And uh, at this point, in Slovenia, there is no undergraduate study uh, for digital humanities. Also, around Europe and in the world, there are no, there, it's, there are very few of those that you could study 
uh, that on the undergraduate level. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because you want somebody to initially develop some kind of, uh, can become a part of a certain approach. And I think that traditional disciplines can still provide with uh, certain guidelines that of course, then you can of course change, move, shift. But if you don't know the philosophy, like history, uh, different methodologies in the humanities, for instance, I know like literary history, but uh, you, if you don't know the theories of uh, historiography, you know, basically it's really difficult to then upgrade uh, your methods using uh, uh, digital tools. On the other hand, I believe that somebody who is very skillful with uh, like uh, working with uh, algorithms, with data, can uh, later on develop certain amount of knowledge of humanities, but uh, can still uh, retain focus in the field that was uh, that he or she studied at the undergraduate level. So. Then, of course, in the first year, some courses are not taught together because the people that have like finished humanities, of course, need to learn certain uh, basic skills from uh, informatics. And of course, the uh, computer science students need to like get acquainted with the uh, humanities methodology. But what I still believe in the case of digital humanities is that uh, it is an interdisciplinary domain, inter interdisciplinary uh, research practice. And interdisciplinarity means, of course, that people with different skills come together. And there's another thing that I think is crucial uh, for understanding what uh, interdisciplinary discipline or interdisciplinary uh, collaboration is. We have to know that there is no interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity as such. There are always constellations of particular skills, traditional disciplines, new emerging disciplines, but always it has to be founded on something with some sort of tradition. You know, traditional disciplines can change, can be integrated into other disciplines, like you have material science, which integrates chemistry and uh, physics, and it's uh, a field. So it's really important for us to develop the interdisciplinary constellation of digital humanities and, of course, to nurture the interdisciplinary collaboration of people that come from different backgrounds. Uh, so this is one of the strong points of uh, this program. Does generative methodology in the digital humanities have to do with the project you did that involved data visualization or novel strategies for data visualization? A generative methodology, that's a term from Los Angeles, University of California, Los Angeles. And uh, it comes from the design practice. And of course, in like computer science, also iterative design. So basically, like trial and error, but building prototypes, evaluating uh, things. This is something that is not uh, usual uh, in the traditional humanities. So, uh, yeah, I have used this approach and it's a hands-on approach, which, yeah, comes from the basically graphic design and also the design 
in general, you know, when you're designing different technologies or different solutions for problems. What characterizes generative methodology? Generative methodology, it is uh, presented in the book uh, Digital Underscore Humanities. It is uh, like an open book, uh, like it's not open, it's like freely accessible on the internet. It was published, I think, by MIT Press a couple of years ago. Johanna Drucker and uh, some other co-authors wrote it. So basically, generative uh, methodology is actually to create to build build things, you know. So if you have like history, uh, historical information, you can have uh, basically letters. You can, uh, of course, encode certain information related to letters, who was sending a letter, uh, where the letter went, different stuff. You can, and of course, you can uh, then integrate the information that was actually collected and create something, and then you evaluate that. So, uh, yeah, and you can do this basically uh, consecutively. So, basically, that you create something and uh, then you evaluate what you have done and then you adapt and change. Not being familiar with it, the first question that pops up in my mind is in this type of iterative process where you evaluate what you have once you have it, it's a bit of a provoking question, but uh, does it mean that you don't really know where you're going? You don't have a clear research question. It's really like, let's see what happens. Uh, yes, of course. This is uh, one way of looking at it. And, you know, if you don't know where you're going, this is not necessarily a bad thing in the humanities. I can give you an interesting example. At least I hope it's interesting. I used to teach a video at the design school and I had students and at the same time I was doing a PhD in the history of literature, not related to that. But of course, I uh, then at that time I asked my students, I was teaching, as I said, video, to make videos based on poems by a Slovenian poet, Tomas Šalomon and on, also on different other poets. So basically I was teaching people uh, to create videos, to master the language of video. And uh, at the same time, they were using uh, literature, literary works, poems that I was also working on when I was doing other stuff. There was an interesting result. First, there, was, there were two authors, and one was not uh, useful for visualizing his poems. So basically, somehow, the results, of course, all the students did their videos, but none of the videos was actually, didn't actually work. And it was interesting. Then I changed the poet and this other author, Tomas Shalomon, uh, his poems are actually like uh, basically one image after the other. So it's very visual. And then like students were very successful and uh, it was yeah an interesting experiment. So I had uh, a collection of really good videos and, of course, each of those videos was related to a great poem. But what is the result here from the point of view of digital humanities? I consider those videos by, of course, graphic design students, so students that haven't studied history of literature or theory of literature, are recordings or notations of their readings 
of those poems. You know, because it's really difficult to materialize some other person's reading of a literary work. It is actually impossible. You can ask uh, the person to describe or to interpret, to write down the interpretation. But here, you know, basically it was a way that the young people were like faced with poems and then they created images that they somehow saw that were like fitting to the, those poems. You know, here you, they were actually creating videos, but those vid videos were in fact uh, recordings of how they read literature. So basically in this sense, you get vague results. You get like 10 uh, great videos to 10 great poems, but it's a step forward, you know, how to record a reading. So this is basically creating, generating, and you're going into the unknown, but you gain something that is otherwise really difficult to, uh, to find, to, to record or to, yeah, to materialize. And then, of course, when you, once you have those videos based on poems, of course, the literary theory and literary history can work on that because now you have actually objects that correspond to the readings of poems. You participated in a European project where, among other things, you collaborated with a team in Ljubljana, a team of experts in information design and data visualization. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that project, what it was about and what the other partners were. Uh, but what I would like to ask you is the part of data visualization and experimenting with new ways of presenting the data to look at it differently. How did that also translate to your artistic work? So data-driven art and all of that. How do you take scientific data and what do you do with them so that you can also exhibit them in an art space? Yes, there are two uh, issues here. So uh, first is, of course, uh, the question how to visualize a digital database. And uh, you're speaking about the visualizations that were uh, created on a women writers database. It is a collection of the reception documents within the literary system, mostly in Europe, but also outside Europe, focused on the women writers. This was a project, it was a European project called Traveling Texts, and in Slovenia it was uh, uh, based at the University of Nova Gorica, but also uh, colleagues from many different countries also collaborated. The thing is, what we did here is, actually we wanted, the, the focus of the project was, of course, on the one hand, to collect the reception documents on women writers, within the literary system. So basically, if somebody writes a book, the reception document about this particular novel is a translation or a review or a mention of this book. So basically, uh, Georges Sand, the center of uh, the literary system as from the point of uh, view of women writers, her works were translated all over Europe and also elsewhere. Here, 
I think the initial point was very good because the reception uh, document actually materializes the stream of, it's not influences, but it's reception. So uh, you cannot write literature unless you know something about literature. So basically you have to read something. So it's in reverse. And when a book is actually translated, the energy of the text by the author is pushing the literary system further. So when you are writing and you are uh, like referencing a major literary work, you know, as something that you would like to emulate it, that is, that is basically, or if you're translating something. So basically here we have information that is uh, very concrete in the sense of how literary system actually functions uh, yeah, in Europe. And, and of course, once you collect the data, then of course you have lots of entries and it's really difficult to study those. And here there are two possible approaches. One is, of course, that you somehow find a suitable <laughs> technique to statistically analyze the data, to visualize it using, uh, I don't know, standard visualization techniques. I don't believe that this is possible. I think the first step that the digital humanities has to do to, to actually embody the like traditional insights of the humanities is to actually understand what happens when you visualize the same data set uh, in different ways. And in order to do that, to evaluate different visualizations, you need to see the visualization. And of course, which can be an issue sometimes in the literary scholarship, you also have to be skilled in the visual language. So uh, we did experiments with having different people involved, uh, like uh, people from the computer information science that could develop different kinds of visualization. We were involving at different stages people that were like literary scholars that could uh, like comment during the creation of uh, visualizations on uh, what they see and whether what they expected to find in the data set is actually visible in the visualization or not. And of course, there's the development of the rhetoric of the uh, visual language of the graphs, and of course, the language of uh, user interfaces. Of course, that's also a way of a communication medium. Basically, you create an, an interactive uh, interface that helps you access some uh, database. The focus here was, and I think this is really important, on creating all the, as, or at least as many possible visualizations as possible, and to realize uh, any idea as crazy as it was. And, you know, this is something that helps us to see how, on the one hand, the database itself is complex and rich, and on the other hand, how powerful the visualization method is in like changing the focus of the of what you and you, how you enter uh, an archive of let's say cultural data. Of course, there's always a tension between how we humanists perceive literary history and of course how it is written down in the actual database. You know, as an encoded element, 
material materialized. So uh, yeah, the the thing that we wanted to explore is develop experimental experimentation within the field of uh, humanities data uh, visualization, and at the same time, if you want to experiment, you have to somehow. Uh, establish infrastructure for that and of course we were like uh, also looking into the ways of uh, organizing an interdisciplinary collaboration and it is a fact that it is i think impossible to pay commercial firms to visualize a data set 100 200 in a 200 ways you know and to develop 200 concepts uh, of how to visualize a certain uh, like given uh, data set. Uh, whereas if you have students, basically you can integrate the like the skills when they're like learning the skills, how to visualize information. Also in this case, when it's women writers database, it's a good thing to consider the fact that when we learn literary history at school, there are fewer authors women writers mentioned than male, the ratio is not the same as when you study the number of authors that are actually there recorded. So the fewer women that the ratio is like much lower. So these are important issues, you know, because the people are complex and wholesome beings and it's something that is, I think, good for anybody. I think also in the computer science, this was developed at the Ljubljana University uh, uh, at the Faculty of Computer and Information Science in the class of my colleague, uh, Narika Boutson, and uh, also some students from uh, University of Nagorica were in involved. They are also developing uh, the understanding of how complex the information in a specific data set is. Because let's face it, uh, today when you have information on users. It is the fact that the information that you can buy, get somehow, you know, you can use it, you can manipulate it, but also there are different aspects of this information. And of course you can use it in, in any possible way, but it's always good to understand, you know, the complexity and to be able to manage it. How does one of these plots become a work of art that you can exhibit? Okay, yeah, that's the other uh, end of uh, this story, yeah, thank you. On the one hand, you have to somehow give meaning to data collected in a digital humanities project, because otherwise it doesn't make sense doing it. So uh, <clears throat> you have to evaluate the data that was collected and uh, of course, basically, somehow work on that data as much as possible. Now, uh, this step makes you really well acquainted with the data. So you actually somehow all the time that uh, <clears throat> we were uh, like teaching either literary history or computer science, we were at the same time getting acquainted with the data that was and is still being uh, collected in the uh, women writers uh, database and now it's a, a virtual research environment that helps even more in uh, that it uh, so that the research on the uh, women writers can go on uh, so the how do to make a step towards the arts is actually if you want to enter the art field then you have to tackle the issues 
like that are relevant to this field. If you want to uh, create uh, good artwork, first of all, it has to be something that others have not seen yet in visual arts. Of course, if you show people something that they haven't seen, basically that's what you want. Because if they have seen that, uh, that's not that good, you know, because then it's not something that was actually made within this artwork. So uh, it is difficult to find ways of creating images out of reality. When we were studying history of women writers and the literary system, we saw something, you know, it's a layer of our world of the history of, of our contemporary world that is there. So we have been in touch with something that is extremely real and that is not that well known to many people, you know, to the audiences outside of really a narrow field of uh, literary history. Once you find a domain that is not explored well, so basically then it's simple, you know, so it's the first step. So you, if we go back to the theory of new media of Manovich, so you have a database and multiple interfaces. So now that we have the database, if you've seen something, we've collected something that others do not have, haven't seen. And then basically just you have to make an interface to that. And of course you can do that using a graph or in our case, what we did is we've built 3D models that were resembling jewelry. If you carry uh, a pendant uh, on a necklace, you carry it with you for a long time. So when you carry that with you for a long time, you think about this object. And that's basically what you want people to do with something as important as uh, literary history and how it's been developing and how uh, we understand it today. So this is what we want to connect. You know, you had like really fa super fascinating uh, content, at least in my opinion. And of course you have to make it accessible to people. You know, have been, we've been uh, silver objects. They were like 3D printed objects using somewhere like uh, built as graphs, different graphs on an object small sculpture-like objects, some were like, uh, like lace-like text fragments, also 3D scans of face manipulated. There were like inscriptions from uh, poems. So the idea was to actually use the information from the research project and to uh, materialize it, embody it in such a way that people would think about, would reflect on it would not actually like see this as something that is not uh, like related to what they do in everyday life. So when you are inspired by scientific data to make a work of art or you're inspired to embed this data in a work of art, is it about making them pretty or they can still be informative and meaningful how, in what way, or both? But in the case of a work of art, is one aspect more important than the other? Well, in this case, uh, it was extremely clear that we are dealing with women writers. As a Foucault scholar, I 
am convinced that you cannot approach uh, the reality neutrally. So feminism is one approach and it's a concrete approach. So the reality is skewed in a sense. And if the feminist uh, approaches in like humanities can show the aspects of reality that were invisible, that were like marginalized, basically that for me is the only possible approach. Okay, maybe the gender aspect, or not maybe, it's a fact that gender aspect is not the only one. I consider similar uh, aspects also the post-colonial studies approach, where different cultures can see things differently, and of course the, the cultures come in contact, as in colonialism, which of course has specific results. Also, eco-critical uh, approaches, where we start to think about non-human kinds of consciousness, if such a thing exists. Also, uh, is an approach that decentralizes the way that the culture is organized. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the content here is crucial, yeah, because you have to be aware that when you are doing something, presenting something, it is embedded in a context and you are saying something and I think it is important that you are clear in the ethical terms, how your ethical position is established, uh, what you are saying. So, yes, here, pretty is not the term, maybe it is a term beautiful that I would use. And of course, it has to be beautiful. But of course, it also, a part of beauty is also uh, the fact that the message is clear. But of course, clear in a meaning that I mentioned uh, in uh, Namjoon Pike's works. You know, his, his videos are not clear when you just look at them, you know, but if you're on a video, a video artist, you actually study his videos and you see that those videos are much more clear than some simple video that wants to say a certain story or present some object. So in this case, the scientific data resulting from a research project have been used, elaborated to also be exhibited in an art space. I know that you've also had a fascination for other technologies used in science, for example, uh, in the chemical field, electronic microscopy, and so on. And you have used also um, data produced in that field for your art, in particular some pictures from the microscope, which you simply enlarged Uh, without any further manipulation than you just presented that to the public. What was that about? Yes, uh, I'm always simultaneously a compar literary comparatist and an artist. So basically, I'm always doing both things at the same time. So when I was doing uh, the jewelry-like visualizations of the history of women writers, I was in fact interested, and I am, I am working on the 19th century literature, so uh, I was actually interested in the uh, research, and this was influencing my use of uh, the data 
in the artistic uh, project. The other uh, project that you uh, have mentioned was when I was collaborating with my colleagues from the Laborative Materials Research Lab from the University of uh, Nova Gorica. So basically from the uh, study of material science. I don't know anything about chemistry and physics, so I'm, I cannot uh, say that I can be a scholar within this domain. In this case, I was working with electron uh, microscopes, uh, actually scanning electron microscope and uh, with our uh, transmission electron microscopes, which are machines that can create something that looks like an image. And uh, here, this is a contact point with my uh, studies. Uh, also, one of the my uh, research areas is, of course, the theory of new media. In the theory of new media, there is the issue of technical images. And uh, we can still say that uh, the image, the visual surface is still the main medium in uh, communication in, with computers today and also it is dominant. Here I go back to the theory of the technical images by William Flusser. Uh, there is the idea of the visual term. This was very uh, popular uh, in the different uh, parts of the humanities. Basically that uh, we used to be use texts more, but now we uh, are more using images to communicate. Uh, well, William Flusser, like Prague Jew that emigrated to Brazil and then in the 70s returned to Europe, to France, and then in the 90s was uh, in the early, he died in 91, uh, he was developing his theory of technical images. I think his approach is uh, a crucial one because he distinguishes between the traditional images and technical images. And I believe that uh, traditional images are something completely different than the technical images. Technical images uh, for Flusser are photography and all different kinds of image making technologies like uh, television and even uh, diagrams for uh, building machines like uh, blueprints and of course x-ray is uh, one of his uh, examples a telephone the thing is that uh, how you create a photograph is uh, completely different than uh, how you create uh, a painting in a painting you see something and then you through your understanding and through your imagination, uh, like put this image in your consci consciousness onto uh, to the surface. In photography, it's this is not the case. Not the case. You can actually uh, have a monkey like pressing uh, the button, and you still get photographs. Of course, the thing is that I'm not. Uh, saying that we do not need people that are photographers. I know uh, what the artists that work in the field of photography do. But that is not the same thing as pressing the button 
on a camera. If you can create, or not create, make an image with the photo camera, and you actually do not know what is in the image, this is a particular case. So uh, what you are doing here is you get the image, but then you have to control the image uh, afterwards. So William Flusser has, of course, developed different uh, theories of different uh, technical uh, image making uh, media. But uh, for me, as a practicing uh, visual artist and video artist, for me, it's important to have a hands-on experience with the machines that can produce images. This was my main uh, interest when I was working with electron microscopes. I could actually use those microscopes, microscopes almost uh, by myself, and I could experiment because I was in position to be able to collaborate with colleagues from the materials uh, uh, research lab. And uh, when you work with the image, you understand how this image is produced. And uh, the other thing that is, of course, crucial here is as a video artist, you are exposed to images that people don't usually see. Here, you have an advantage before other artists because uh, you have many images that are not yet used up. And I think it is really important to introduce those visual features into the visual culture, no? into the visual arts domain. Because if there are visual features, it is something that we can relate to, and of course, we must relate to. And we have to reflect on what this image means, how it functions, uh, how it looks like, why we see it as such, and so on. Here I had a hands-on experience on an image-making technique uh, that is that you don't usually get that much time on electron microscopes as I did. And uh, so I was experimenting, actually using electron microscopes uh, to make videos. I would like to thank you for being on Technoculture and for sharing this time with us. And I wish you all the best with your projects and your art. Bye. Okay, so see you. Thank you for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast.